right, little business note to start off. A couple weeks ago, we did a, our annual budget meeting where uh, if you were in attendance, uh, we took a vote to approve the budget. We do that every year because the members approve or can disapprove of the budget. But just an update, that, that passed. Um, I mean, it usually does, but it passed with near 100% approval, pretty much 99%. There was one no vote, but that was me. Um, so, so what are these people thinking, man? So yeah, it's, it's a good sign. We're all on the same page. We see the vision before us and the mission and the strategy on how to get there. So near 100% approval is awesome. Okay, so uh, we've got, we got two weeks left in Moses. We should have planned this to be much longer, much, much longer. Um, there's... Sermon series are like worship songs. Uh, you can play a worship, and, and Drew wasn't aware of this because he was never like a, a professionally, like career-wise, a worship leader before this. Um, but he learned this really quick. Like the same worship song on a Sunday, someone could be like, that was the best song. We need to play that more. It moved me to tears. It's such a good song. And then someone else that same Sunday would be like, man, if we ever play that dumb song again, I'm leaving this church type of thing. <laughs> And sermon series are similar where there are some of you who like shorter sermon series, like five, six weeks series, because when you move a lot, it feels like there's new things, new topics. And then there's some of you who are like, man, we just, just pick the gospel of Matthew and let's stay there for four, five, six years. Just going slow, slow. Uh, John Piper once did a sermon series on Romans that I think was four years. Um, just going. And so we try to do some middle ground, so we did this we crafted the, the Life of Moses series, and I think we made it 11 weeks or something. That was a bad move. It should have been like 20 to 25. Today, there's really like seven sermons worth of material, so get comfortable. Um, we're going to go through all seven. It's a special number. Uh, no, we're actually throwing out so much material uh, that I wish I would have made this series a lot longer. So where have we been? If you're just here, or you're unfamiliar with the story or just joining us, a brief summary of the life of Moses in the book of Exodus to this point. God's people, the Israelites, are in slavery and bondage in Egypt. God chooses a guy named Moses to be the deliverer. God reveals his holy, covenantal, relational Hebrew name to Moses. Yahweh, I am that I am. And he sends Moses to confront Pharaoh. As he confronts Pharaoh, Ten plagues occur till finally Pharaoh agrees to let the people of Israel go free. Pharaoh has a change of heart, however, and then sends his armies out to capture the now newly freed Israelites. God parts the sea, the Israelites walk through it, and as the Egyptian armies are going through the waters, the waters close in on and defeat Pharaoh and his armies. God then, after that, brings his people here to the wilderness. Now, if, if you're an ancient Israelite, this is the last place you want to go. The wilderness, no food, no water. There's evil spirits in the ancient minds of the time, the, the wilderness. There's, there's evil spirits out there. There's evil territorial gods. I mean, this is hard for us to think about as modern people because modern people e either usually in the Western world have two categories. Theism, belief in God, and atheism, belief in no God. Sometimes you're agnostic, but agnosticism still acknowledges the two categories. It's, I don't know if there's a God or not. But namely, there's those still categories in place. Other places in the world, there's things like pantheism and, and other worldviews. But in the modern Western world, you pretty much have belief in God or belief in no God, or you're unsure about it. The Israelites grew up in a polytheistic world. So there's multiple gods, evil spirits, good spirits. They're, all, they're everywhere. They're all around. And the place where there's a lot of bad ones 
is in the wilderness. And in addition to that, there's no food, there's no waters, and the bad, there's bad guys that want to kill you. So the last place you want to go is the wilderness. In fact, the wilderness may be the one place that's actually worse than Egypt. How do we know that? Because the people want to go back to Egypt. Wilderness is a barren wasteland. It's scary. There's evil spirits there. But it's there and precisely there that God will teach his people what it means to be his people. Now, at this point in the story, something fascinating occurs, and it deals with what we'll call the main point of the book of Exodus. When you think about the book of Exodus, what do you think is the high point or the main point or the climax of the story or the most intense epic part of the story? Think, think like in movie terms. Think like, what is the Luke, I am your father scene? The, the, all the Avengers come to fight Thanos scene. Like, what's the epic main point? The big, the big thrust of it. What is the, the nacho telling Chancho that he is indeed a luchador? What is that in the book of Exodus? What comes to mind? What's, what's the climax of the book of Exodus? For some of you, it may be like the burning bush where God reveals himself. For others, it's the plagues or Passover or the parting of the sea. But there's something that occurs with the, the kind of content load of the book of Exodus. If we were to break out the book of Exodus into sections, the first four chapters would deal with the call of Moses. The next 12 chapters would deal with the deliverance of Israel, and I'm being, I'm being generous with this kind of literary unit, because really these 12 chapters have um, Moses confronting Pharaoh, the 10 plagues, the Passover, the leaving of Israel from Egypt, the Red Sea, the closing of the Red Sea, and then the song that comes after. But I'm going to pretend that that's all just one literary unit, See, the 12 chapters on that whole scene. Then there's three chapters of God providing in the wilderness. That's the water, the manna, and then the water again, delivering from the Amalekites. Then there's six chapters dealing with God giving the law. Then there is 12 of the last 15 chapters dealing with the tabernacle. 12 of the last 15. So if you were just weighing the book of Exodus on content, what is probably the main point of the book? It could be the tabernacle, the construction of the tabernacle. Now, what's incredibly interesting is how incredibly uninteresting the construction of the tabernacle is to us. You know what I mean? Because there's some of you who, you know, even, you know, you're a good Christian who reads the Bible every day. You get to six chapters of precise detail of the construction of the tabernacle, and then you start to, you know, do one of those. You know, you know where you read like a whole page and a half, and you go, I don't remember anything that happened. <laughs> and then some of you are more righteous. You just, you, you go back and you start over. Some of you go, uh, I don't remember what happened. I'm kind of lost. Let's just skip to the next part. But l- look at the, de- the, the detail of this. God says, make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among you. God wants to dwell with his people, so you're going to build him a tabernacle. And then the details of the construction. This is just one verse. I just want to show you one verse. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. 
Now, there's several chapters of this precise detail. Like, don't mess around. It's got to be this long. It's got to be five inches here, weigh this many pounds here, this long here, this color here, made of this material here. Exact detail, chapter after chapter after chapter. Then there's a small interruption for a few chapters, what we'll get to in a moment. And then it picks up and pretty much repeats word for word those precise details of the construction of the tabernacle. The first time it talks about it, it's in the, it's in the voice of God saying, you build the tabernacle like this, cubit and a half its height, overlay with pure gold, da 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 The second time it repeats it, it says that then so-and-so, whoever's responsible for that part of the building, then so-and-so built the ark according to da 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 and it lists in detail an exact word-for-word retelling of what God originally commanded. For example, this is the mirror image of the previous verse. Then Bazalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height, and it overlaid pure gold inside and outside, making a molding of gold around it. And it's detail after detail, word for word, the exact same thing. And for us, where brain wants to go, da 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 da, it's the same stuff. But for God, it's precise detail. This is my house and I'm going to tell you to do it, and then when you do it, I want you to repeat back to me that you did it exactly according to the plans that I gave you. So what's incredibly interesting is how incredibly uninteresting, uninteresting this is to us. Now, right in the center of that, those two pieces, those mirror images, there's an interruption. So you have several chapters of God saying to build it like this, and on the other side, you have several chapters of people building it exactly the way God said. And in the middle is a three-chapter break. And this break has everything to do with why the tabernacle is being constructed. What takes place at the tabernacle? Sacrifices. Sacrifices for sin. I mean, not all sacrifices are for sin, but a big part part of the sacrificial system is for atonement and forgiveness. So, right in the center of the detailed description of the construction of the tabernacle are three chapters dealing with sin, and sin being one of the reasons why we are talking about the tabernacle in the first place. And the sin that occurs is one of the most famous in all the Bible. That's what we'll get into today. Know what it is? The story of the golden calf, right in the heart of the tabernacle's construction. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Hmm. Make us gods who shall go before us. If you're familiar with the biblical kind of literature, specifically in the Old Testament, who is supposed to go before you? God, Yahweh, the God of Israel is the one who always goes before you. But in this case, they want Aaron to make up gods that will go before them. Now, you have to understand something here, and it goes back to what we just talked about. The people of this time were saturated in the worldview of polytheism, the belief in many gods. They do not believe that, oh, we, you know, they're not saying, oh, we no longer believe in Yahweh, the God of Israel, and so we're going to worship other gods. They're not doing that. Something else is occurring. 
it says that Moses was delayed from coming down the mountain. Moses is the mediator between Israel and God. Who goes up the mountain? Moses. The people do not go up and talk to, to God. They talk to Moses, who then talks to God. So when Moses goes away, and then he's gone for 40 days, who knows? Who knows what happened to Moses? And when Moses is gone, there's a fear that maybe they have no real connection with the God of Israel, the God of uh, the d- deliverance, Yahweh. And so Moses has been pretty much readily available for the Israelites every other time. Even when he goes up the mountains, he's usually there for a day and comes down. The text tells us he's gone for 40 days. So after 40 days, people begin to wonder, man, maybe Moses is old. He died up there. Maybe God took him out. Maybe Yahweh killed him. Maybe a cranky old mountain goat kicked poor Moses down the mountain. We don't know what happened. But fear comes in. And when fear comes, they begin to get this. They don't abandon the worship of Yahweh. They begin to supplement the worship of Yahweh. They begin to add to it. So Aaron said to them, Take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? Question, what's the first, what, how, does the, how, do, how do the Ten Commandments begin? It's a trick question, tricking you. Because it's sort of right, have no other gods before me. But the way the Ten Commandments begin is with like a, an introduction. There's a sentence, and it says, it's God speaking. He says, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? It's the exact phrasing right here. The Ten Commandments begin with God saying, I am Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They construct a golden calf and say, these are the gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, it's going to become more clear in a moment, but you have to understand something. The people are not waking up and saying, the God of Israel no longer exists. They are fearful for their lives because there's no food, there's no water, there's bad guys that want to kill them, and there's evil spirits in the wilderness. And so when fear and anxiety and doubt overtake them, Moses, who is their connection to God, is nowhere to be found. The people then need other things to put their hope and trust in, and they create idols. Now, when we look back at these stories, if you're probably like me, you know, you kind of say something. Why would they put their trust in other gods? They just saw Plague after plague, the parting of the sea, the deliverance, miracle after miracle, provision after provision, and now they're going to worship other gods? Remember how they got there. What did we just say? They began to fear. They were filled with dread, anxiety, and doubt, and therefore they created other gods to find safety and security in. Or let's phrase it a little differently. When they became fearful, 
is when they begin to trust in other things. Now, in one sense, you could just look at them and say, how could they be so dumb? But hear me again. When you become fearful and filled with anxiety and doubt, it is then that you begin to trust in other things. You as a Christian will probably not be tempted tomorrow morning to abandon your belief in God. I mean, some of you wrestle with that type of doubt and you continue wrestling through it. But most of you, like tomorrow morning, you wake up, you're not going to go, there is no God, I don't believe anymore. Your temptation will be to put your hope and trust in other things in addition to the one true God. So for them, they're polytheist. So they believe there's other powers out there, other gods, other spirits. So when they need to trust in other things for safety and security, they pick other gods. They make a golden calf. You're a modern person, so you don't go, you know, you're stressed out, you're worried about your job, you don't go into your room and make a little golden calf, but you better believe you find something else to place your trust in. We don't have the gods of Egypt, but you still have things that vie for your love. And some of you know exactly where you go when, you get like, when you're filled with fear and anxiety and doubt and stress. Like, where do you go to find comfort? For them, it was another God. But for you, it's, it's a modern thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, have, do, you, do you know what your thing is? You're stressed out. There's anxiety. You're fearful. It's like, where do you turn? And for some of you, it's like, yeah, I know exactly where I turn, man. I go get that double brownie fudge, dark chocolate ice cream. And it's funny because, you know, some, for some of you, that's true, right? And then for someone else, it might be like a harder substance. It's alcohol or some drug. But you, when you run to something like that, you're finding comfort, safety, and security in something else besides God. Now, in and of itself, there's like nothing wrong with ice cream. And obviously, substance abuse is worse than ice cream. The consequences are, and the weight of that coping mechanism are far different. However, the root is the same. You're filled with fear, anxiety, and doubt, and you need something in addition to God to, in addition to, God to give you peace, and you find it. It could be ice cream. It could be drugs. It could be a promiscuous lifestyle. Say, how does a promiscuous lifestyle have any... Think about it like this. You picture a little girl who doesn't have a father fig figure in her life, and she's starved for masculine attention. And so, because she's starved for masculine attention, she learns at an early age that when she flirts with the boys, they give her extra attention. And it feels good to get extra attention from the boys. And so, in junior high and high school, she realizes the boys just don't like innocent flirting. You have to do more than that to say, make them say things like, I love you. And so, what do you do? You kiss. Then it goes the next step, next step. And then you learn that if you have sex with boys, they tell you I love you and tell you a bunch of nice things. And that feels really good because you want another man to tell you those types of things. And then that girl grows up and now she's living a promiscuous lifestyle. You may judge her, but in reality, she's just a girl seeking comfort, safety, and security. She's seeking out something that dad did not give her. So whatever it may be, Modern people, you don't make golden calves, but believe me, you have golden calves. Things that you find your safety, your security in, and you trust in them. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Lord is all capitals here. That's Yahweh. So remember, remember what we just discussed. They're not abandoning worship of the God of Israel. They make this golden calf, and then they say, Tomorrow we are going to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. The golden calf incident is not an abandonment of belief in God. It's the supplementation of that worship. And this is the church's temptation. The church in America, although some people struggle with this, will primarily not be tempted by abandoning belief in God. The church in America will be tempted by adding things to the true worship of God. So it's not the abandonment of true worship. It's the adding and taking away of the true worship of God. You don't like what the Bible says here? Take that page out. The Bible doesn't say what you want it to say. Add something here. The sin of the golden calf is first and foremost not a breaking of the first commandment. It's a breaking of the second commandment. Make no graven image. But the way the inner logic of the Ten Commandments work is that if you break the second commandment, you break the first. By the way, that's the logic of the entire Ten Commandments. If you break the third commandment, you've broken the first. If you break the ninth commandment, you've broken the first command. That's the inner logic of the Ten Commandments. So, they're going to worship Yahweh with the image of a golden calf. And what do they do? They do exactly what they say they're going to do. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We're going to worship God in the morning. We're going to eat, drink, dance. We're going to have good times and we're going to play. It's like, you're going to play? You're going to like, hey, let's do some badminton in the wilderness, some bocce ball or some like desert volleyball. What do you mean play? You get up in the morning and play. One of the things we've been trying to, to work through in the last few years is to demonstrate that biblical words and images have a dictionary, and that dictionary is not the dictionary. If you want to know what a word means in the Bible, you go back to the Old Testament and see how that word is used. Particularly, you want to look at the book of Genesis, because Genesis contains the foundational stories and so you want to see a word defined not by dictionary.com, but by the Old Testament stories, particularly the first ones of the book of Genesis. They work as the visual and, and dictionary of, of the Old Testament, of the entire Bible. So, what does it mean to play? This word play is saha in Hebrew. And the question you should be asking is, does it appear in one of those foundational stories? And the answer is yes. Saha means to play or to laugh or to tell jokes. So they're dancing, drinking, eating, and laughing, telling jokes, playing, having a good time. That word, to laugh, is used, however, in the story of Abraham. God promises Abraham that he's going to have a son. His wife, Sarah, hears the news that God has said Abraham is going to have a son, and she what? Sachas, she laughs. So what does sacha mean? It means to laugh. In one sense, just to laugh. In another sense, it's when someone looks at the word of God, the promises of God, the person and character of God, 
and looks at what God says and laughs. So what are they doing here? They are looking at the holy God and his word and his promises, and they saha. They laugh in the face of God. What, how did they do that? What does play, like, how did they do that? Were they literally laughing at God? We don't know. What the Bible wants you to know is that they sachad. They laughed at God. However, someone else tells us more precisely what play means in this context. This author is not concerned to tell you what it was. However, Paul the Apostle, writing to the Corinthian church, is recalling the events of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings and gives the Corinthians a warning. He says, Do not be idolatrous as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. So how did they laugh at God? How did they play? They committed sexual morality. Now, something else going on here. For the last 10 chapters, and we don't have time to break, break it out into all these little things, because just hints and clues and subtleties. For the last 10 chapters, give or take, in the book of Exodus, God has been using wedding language, marriage language, to describe the Sinai event. And if you were to look at all the language, it would demonstrate that God is about to make a covenant with Israel. God is going to make a covenant with Israel, and that covenant is told in the terms of a marriage covenant. God is going to marry his people in the wilderness. And henceforth, Israel will often be called the bride of God, the bride of the Lord. Israel is the bride. When does this wedding take place? It takes place at the establishment of the covenant. What is Moses doing right now? He's up on the mountain getting the contract, the terms of the covenant. Now think about that. Who is Israel? The bride. Who is God? The groom. What is Moses preparing? The wedding contract. On the eve of the wedding, what does the bride do? She commits adultery. As the wedding night approaches, the bride is caught committing sexual immorality. All of that is occurring while Moses is getting the terms of the wedding contract. Meanwhile, this is happening. The Lord says to Moses, I have seen the people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Whew. So God's going like, I'm, I'm going to take these people out and I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Moses. Now, has God done this before where he wipes everyone out and starts over with one person? Yeah, so this is, a, this is the real deal here, okay? Now, you've got to put yourself in Moses' shoes. 
what would you do? I don't know about you, but I'd, I'd be like, this is a great plan, God. I think you should start over and make a great nation out of me. These people are stubborn. They're stiff-necked. God, do you remember? We, we, it rained down bread from the sky for these people. We gave them water. We did the ten plagues crossing of the Red Sea. And you know what they do? Grumble. They bicker and complain. They're going to try to kill me, God. These people will try to kill me. I don't like them. I don't like them. Not, e- not even a little bit. Don't even like them. These guys are whack. Kill them. Start over with me. That's a great plan. In fact, God, I was going to mention that to you a couple chapters earlier. I thought it was maybe a good idea, but I'm, I'm pretty humble, so I didn't want to bring it up, so I'm glad you finally caught up. Let's start over and make a great nation out of me. That's what we do, not Moses. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people." Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So Moses, rather than saying, start over man, make a great nation out of me, says, no, no, God, That's a horrible idea. Why? Because if you are whom you say you are, you are a faithful and true God and you're always faithful to your promises. And you promised to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a great nation, a people, an inheritance. So if you are who you say you are and you're faithful and true to your promises, for your name's sake, do not blot out these people. And God relents from his anger. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hands. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Now, how often does the Bible talk like this? The hand of God, the writing of God. This is very rare. So this is a big big deal. These tablets contain the word of God written by God. And Moses is bringing them down. Now, I told myself I would not bring this up because it's a massive distraction, although it's an awesome distraction. But I couldn't help it, and so I started to talk about it in first service. So I'll just do it lightly. But this is a whole other sermon. This is like a whole other 45 minutes sermon. I'll give you like the cliff notes, right? Not have time to get into it. So good. How the Bible is so good, does this stuff, and you just, you, all right. So, when you picture the Ten Commandments, you picture uh, two tablets, right? On one is the first five, and the, the other second tablet is the other five. That's like the Charlton Heston way, okay? Ten Commandments movies, first five, second five. It says that they're written on the front and the back here. Okay. So, what is this? What's occurring? This is a covenant. This is a covenant ceremony. You have to understand something about covenants in the ancient Near Eastern world. When two parties would make a covenant, 
So this king is going to be in covenant with this king. This king says, I promise to give you a thousand goats a month. And in turn, this king says, when you give me those thousand goats, in turn, I promise to give you military protection from your enemies. They make the covenant on a tablet, and then they make a replica of the same tablet so that each party takes the terms of the covenant with them. You get this. So it's not five commands and five commands. It's two tablets that are identical. They're replicas. And when you make a covenant, one tablet goes with one party and one tablet goes with the other party. Now, when kings made covenants, they would keep their tablets in a certain location. They would keep their tablets at their footstool underneath, at their very throne. It was a way of saying, the king in my throne and the contracts underneath my footstool, I will obey, I will fulfill my, my terms of the contract. Okay. You got two replicas of the contract. Where do they go? Where do, where do the, two, the two tablets end up? Where do they end up in the story? They go into the Ark of the Covenant, right? What is the Ark said to be? The footstool of Yahweh. So Yahweh is thrown, and he's enthroned with the two cherubim, and at his foot, at his feet, is the footstool, and the footstool in the Ark of the Covenant is the terms of the contract, the terms of the wedding covenant with his people. Now, how many are there? Two tablets. Wait, wait. One's supposed to go with the people, and one's supposed to go with God. But God takes both of them and puts them both at his footstool. Why is that? Told you it's a good thing. I don't have time to get into it, so we just got to keep going. Okay. God puts both contracts at his feet as if to say, I will fulfill both sides and both terms of the contract. So God's going to keep his end of the bargain and he's going to keep Israel's end of the bargain. Remember the Ten Commandments, what happens when God gives the people the law? What do they say? We will obey. We will obey. When they say we will obey, that is the same. It's very similar to what we do at weddings where you go, do you promise to da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da and you say, I do. When God gives the contract, the covenant, he gives it to the people and they say, I do, I do. I promise to do this, this, and this. Israel should then have a list of, I promise to do this, this, and this. And that's what the Ten Commandments function as, the wedding vows. But God doesn't give them a copy of the contract. Why? Because he knows his bride will not keep the contract. But he does, however, himself take it and put it at his footstool, as if to say, I will not only do my end, but do your end. Now you ask, how does that work? Israel never obeys their side of the bargain. They, they don't obey the contract. Does Israel obey the contract? No, but yes. Because no, in one sense, but then a faithful Israelite comes who obeys the contract perfectly, 
all of his life. And that faithful Israelite who obeys the Israelites part of the contract also happens to be the other partner in the original contract. Do you see that? In Jesus, you have God and Israel together making that marriage covenant work. So when Moses comes down with these two tablets, this is heavy stuff. This is heavy. This is the writing of God, the covenant between the groom and his bride. And Moses looks down and he sees this scene. When Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them on the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. <sighs> that dude don't mess around. You know? Comes down. I mean, this, the tablets are sacred. It's the wedding covenant. But what does he see the people doing? Adultery, sexual morality, worshiping the golden calf. The contract is now broken, breaks it down. And just to add measure to, to the fact that the contract is broken, grinds it down, turns it to powder, now you drink it. Oh, man. By the way, this should give insight. There's a weird, if you read Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which you need to often. There's this weird passage where if someone is, uh, someone is accused of committing adultery, you familiar with this? What are you to do? You go take dust from where? The tabernacle, and you put it in water, and you have the person drink it. And if they get ill from that, then you know they were guilty. Super weird passage. But when you understand what was going on before, it's this. When God was faithful to his bride and his bride was committing adultery, Moses ground down the tablets, and when they drank it, it became a curse upon them. And so in the same way, a woman or a man who's committing adultery does this same act, and the dirt does the same thing. This is why you interpret the stories through the other stories. They, you, you can begin to connect the dots. This is so good. It's so bad, but it's so good. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They are set on evil. This is Aaron. He made, who made the calf? Who made the golden calf? Aaron did. He's like, Moses, bro, I, you were gone for 40 days. Everyone was, you know, flipping out, man. You were gone. And you know how these people are. They're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So I said to them, let anyone who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Would you, oh, Moses, do you want to see it? 
It's like, you know, if you have young kids and you turn, turn the corner and then all of a sudden on your hallway walls, they drew on it. It's like crayon markers. Who did this? Well, you know, big sister, you know my brother, he's set on evil in all of his ways. And you talk to brother, it's like, I didn't do it. It just came out that way. You told me God can do anything. How do you know God didn't do that, Dad? Do you see this blame game? But this is, this is like a pattern in the Bible, the blame game, the blame shifting. Aaron, who did this? These evil people are set on being evil. Adam, who told you you can eat the fruit? The woman you gave me. Eve, who told you you can eat the fruit? The serpent. God, you didn't say anything about talking snakes, man. They're, it was really tricky. It's a tricky situation. You've been talked to by a talking snake? Cain is angry. Oh, it's Abel. God loves Abel more. It's always someone else's fault. And by the way, it's no different today, especially in our culture. It's no different than today. It's always everyone else's fault but you. It's their fault. Their fault. Well, you don't understand. You don't know what I've been through. It's my parents' fault. My dad's fault. My mom's fault. No, it's my wife's fault. It's my, my spouse's fault. My husband's fault. It's my country's fault. It's my culture's fault. And, and believe me, there's a lot of truth to that. Because the world is filled with a lot of evil people, things, and institutions. But the biblical response is not to kind of look at the multifaceted angles of what caused you to do what, co- to, what caused you to do what you did. They're saying like, yeah, there was reasons for that, but at the end of the day, I still did it. I did it. But that's not what we do anymore. It's not my fault. It's his fault. It's their fault. You don't understand. You don't, you don't know my story. So we point the finger, Adam to Eve, to Eve to the serpent, Cain to Abel, Aaron to the people. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, the people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Remember first, Moses, I'm going to make a great nation out of you and I'm going to start over. Moses does. No way, God. Stay true to who you are. Next, Moses says, forgive these people. But if you will not forgive them, take me out. Forgive them, but if you will not forgive them, kill me. Does that sound familiar? If you can't forgive them, kill me. And this gets us to the heart of why the tabernacle was constructed. Because in one sense, the tabernacle was constructed to deal with sin, idolatry, and adultery. But that's a secondary reason. The tabernacle was constructed to deal with sin as a secondary reason, because there's not supposed to be sin. There's not supposed to be a golden calf. So dealing with sin in the sacrificial system is the secondary reason. What's the primary reason for the tabernacle? God wants to dwell with his people. God wants to live among his people. 
And this, like many other things in the Bible, is a theme and design pattern that's there again and again and again and again. How does our story start? God creating a garden and wanting to dwell with his people. What do Adam and Eve do? They sin and rebel and then run. See, a lot of people think sort of like, you know, the, God is a holy God and Adam and Eve could no longer be in the presence of God. Now, God is a holy God, but that's not what the story is saying. Adam and Eve run, and who chases after them? The holy God who comes to them. He pursues them and says, why are you running? Why are you? Who told you you're naked? Why are you hiding? And then after that, God builds a tabernacle so he could dwell with his people. But what do they do? They worship the graven image. They rebel and run. Then God builds a temple in Jerusalem to dwell among his people. And what do they do? They rebel, and the temple is destroyed. And then finally, in the scriptures, there's one final tabernacle, one final temple, where God chooses to dwell with his people once again. In the Gospel of John, which is a biographical account of the life of Jesus, John begins his bi biography by saying, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word in this case is Jesus, and it's John's way of saying, this guy Jesus is not just a guy, he's not just a man, he is God. And then he goes on for 13 verses describing this Jesus and this Word, and then he concludes his section with this. This Jesus, this Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word for dwelt here is skenao, and skenao means literally to tabernacle, but that doesn't exist in English, so you can't translate this, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Skenao means to tent or to tabernacle. In other words, in the tent and tabernacle and temple, you have God's presence that is then surrounded by a building. God is dwelling with his people, his presence is there and surrounded by a building. But in the person of Jesus, you now have the presence of God surrounded, not with building, but with human flesh. And the word, God himself, skenaod, he tabernacled among us to dwell with his people once again. Now, if you know the story, you should be guessing what happens, because what happens when God wants to dwell with his people? Does it end well? No. When God wants to dwell with his people and he comes down, his people rebel. They rebel and worship false gods. But in the final temple, when God himself tabernacled in human flesh and came to walk among us, humanity not only rebelled, they accused him. Remember those fingers? Remember the blame game? It's his fault, it's his fault, it's his fault. You finally have one innocent human being who's innocent all of the time, who is gracious and compassionate and giving and, and his treatment of the poor, of women and the oppressed. It's, it's beyond what words can, can articulate. Finally, there's someone who's innocent. And what do we do? His fault. We put him on trial. We say, crucify this one, crucify him, kill him. And this is the twist. 
for the first time in human history, there is finally an innocent human being. And rather than that innocent human being saying, no, your fault, your fault, the truly innocent one finally says, guilty. I will take the guilty man's verdict. And this has been the story of humanity. It's their fault. It's their fault. Not me. Their fault. Their fault. Their fault. Oh, yeah, see him? Crucify him. And then the truly innocent one says, the buck stops with me. No more pointing. Point everything here. Point it right here at me. And so when you look at the cross of Christ, you see Jesus battered and beaten and bleeding. You see him dying. You see him gasping for air you see the truly innocent one saying, it all stops here. No more pointing the finger. I'll take the guilty verdict. Are there any more stones to throw? Are there any more crosses to hang on? Are there any more nails to hammer in? Are there any more blows to be received? All of it falls upon me. I take the guilty verdict. Because this is what it would take to reconcile humanity to God. Because despite what modern culture says, humanity doesn't just rebel against God. We hate God. We hated him in our hearts. We wanted him dead, and we cried out, crucify him. And this is what it would take to reconcile his people. But that's not how the story ends. What, what happens? Jesus crucified, and he resurrects. And then what does he say he gives us? a new covenant. Now follow that. A new covenant. So the, the groom saw his bride committing adultery on the wedding night. And he comes and takes her punishment. He dies on the cross for her sins and then he resurrects and gives us a new covenant. Do you understand what that means? The faithful groom goes to the unfaithful bride and gets down on one knee and says, will you marry me yet again? And he is willing to renew his wedding vows with the rebellious bride. And he does that through his cross, through his death and resurrection. That's why I made... You know, we say something like, do you know about the love of God? You can, go, you can get numb to that, right? How many of you are numb to that? Oh, yeah, I know God loves me. Do, do you know what that love looked like? Man, we don't know. We don't know a thing about the love of God. We do not know about the depths of his love, the depths of his grace, the vastness of his mercy. For thousands of years, it's God chasing after us, and we rebel, we rebel, and God chases and chases and chases, and then finally we turn and say, crucify him. And even after all of that, he comes for his bride and says, I love you. Will you marry me yet again? We're going to take communion. And as we take communion... I want us to reflect on the love of God, the cross of Christ, and then ask ourselves the question, are we trusting in this God? 
Because we're not picking up like golden calves and worshiping them. But we are going after other lovers. And God says, I'm not sharing you. I'm not sharing my bride with other lovers. I want all of you. No one wants an unfaithful spouse. And God is faithful to his dying breath. And then he comes back and gives us the new covenant. Now, now get this. If, if, you're not a, if you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, don't feel awkward. You can just pass the communion by you. This is something Christians and followers of Jesus do. So when do we renew our wedding vows? Every Sunday. Why do you renew your wedding vows every Sunday? Because what are we about to do? This is my body broken for you. This is the blood of the new contract, the new covenant. So Sundays, Resurrection Sundays, are when we Sundays are when you remember your wedding day. And for some of you, I know that's painful. But no matter whether your memory of a wedding day is joyful or filled with pain, the truest wedding day of your life is the day God saved you. And that's a good day. And so every week, we remember our wedding day. God didn't come down from Sinai to destroy his people. You saw Moses give you a glimpse of one to come later. Jesus, who takes the penalty, who dies for the bride, and in turn initiates a new covenant. Let's stand. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He then took the cup and said, this is my blood spilt on your behalf. This is the blood of the new covenant. As long as you drink this, you promise to be faithful by proclaiming my death and resurrection until I return. Father, we give you thanks for the work and person of your son. We thank you that even though we were found faithless, he was found faithful. Pray for every single person in this room that they would taste a bit of the love of God today, that we would not let that phrase just be common among us, that the love of God would be sacred and that we would understand the full weight and power of it. So remind us of your love. We are fearful, insecure people, so we need you to remind us. Tell us in the ways you do that you love us, that you are near and you are close. Remind us of that. Instill it in us today. And may we walk as the bride of Christ today. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. If you need prayer, 